this week on the Backtable Podcast. We're not going to run a marathon on day one. We're not going to revolutionize our culture. But first, let's start by just putting our tennis shoes on and making a commitment to try to drive as much positive influence in our personal culture. And I'm, we're focusing on our work culture as we can and see if that feels good and, and is engaging. I, I joke with faculty that, you know, not every day has to be process improvement day. Process improvement day can feel sort of exhausting. Sometimes it's, hey, let's just do a good job today. Let's just take care of patients. Let's focus on the here and the now. And I think that's enough. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week. And today we have a very special guest, Dr. Christopher Kane, who will be discussing creating culture through leadership and mentoring. Certainly, this is something that applies to us in our personal, professional lives as leaders and surgeons, and we will be releasing this episode across all platforms. Briefly, Chris is the Dean of Clinical Affairs and the CEO of the UC San Diego Health Physicians Group. Prior to coming to UC San Diego, Dr. Kane held leadership positions at UC San Francisco and the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. He's a retired Navy captain and decorated veteran of Desert Storm. Chris, thrilled to have you on the show. How are you doing Great today? Great to you. Great to be with you. Perfect. So, so let's just jump on into it and maybe define a couple of terms. You know, we hear so much about culture. In your mind, what is culture? Yeah, I mean, culture is really the norms of behavior and relationships that exist in an organization. As you well know, there's leadership books written on this topic and culture can be simplified as to kind of the way things are done around here, but it also has to do with the way we behave toward each other, our attitudes, our preferences, and each organization develops cultural norms. Even many times we're not really aware of them until we become used to the organization or we sort of get, you know, get into the organization and become familiar with, uh, with those cultural norms. And I think if we reflect on the different organizations we've been in, and I know you've been in, in a number as I, as I have, where we trained, uh, where our first job was, where we're working currently, we can kind of, if we think carefully about it, we'll think about what are the norms about showing up? What are the norms about dress, about behavior, about the way meetings are run? There's many different cultural norms. Some are spoken and some are unspoken. Most are unspoken, actually and become just part of the fabric of the organization. Yeah, and I really kind of hope to dig into what are some of those things that we sense, that we feel, that make us want to do our best. You know, I mean, obvious example is you walk into somebody's OR as a trainee and people are comfortable and there's a good tone, there's a good vibe, and then you can walk into somebody else's OR and, and that's not exactly the sentiment that you yeah. get. And I also think about it, you know, there's actually what's going on and then there's the perception, you know, what I might feel or sense in my OR versus your OR versus somebody else's, there's objectively what's transpiring and then there's how I feel about it. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that in terms of our own personality, our own way of interacting with other people. Yeah, I think a lot of what we try to aspire to are things that we've seen that we admire and behaviors that we admire. And I'll tell a story. Uh, 
when I was a medical student, I went to the military medical school, Uniformed Services University, and I was on a surgical rotation at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. And we had a pediatric surgeon at that time, Dr. Victor Garcia, who was a really wonderful person, a very intimidating character, great big man, a big deep voice. And I was the third or fourth year medical student, I don't recall, in the rotation. And we stood outside the operating room. And he was the first person I ever saw really do a team-engaged timeout in the operating room. I'm scrubbing, I'm kind of nervous. And he walks into the room and uh, the child is already asleep. And he speaks to the nurse and the scrub tech and the anesthesiologist. And I don't recall the child's name. Let's say it's you know Henry. And he said, I just want to take a moment and have us all focus on Henry. I just came back speaking to his mom and dad, and he remembered their names, you know, Bob and Lois. Of course, this is the most important day in their lives. Henry's asleep and now in our hands. And I reassured him that we would do our very best for him. So as we focus on our tasks today, I want to keep Henry, I want you all to keep Henry front and center. And he knew everybody's name in the operating room. He knew the scrub tech. He knew the nurse. And that was his opening, closing statement that set the tone for the operating room. And it's funny, as I recall that story, I get chills because it was so impactful for me that day that I said to myself, I want to be like Dr. Garcia. And that's how I want to run my operating room. And I want to make that kind of a difference. And although I didn't go into pediatrics, uh, what I meant by that is, you know, I, I just thought it was so cool that he could center everybody gently and compassionately toward the mission. And to me, that, that set incredible cultural tone. And I can't tell you how many people in our class wanted to go into surgery because we'd rotated on rotations with Dr. Garcia. Yeah, that's a great story, Chris. And I mean, you know, one immediately actionable takeaway, I think for all of us is just the power of somebody's name. You know, if I walk into the clinic and I say, hey, good morning, or if I say, hey, good morning, Veronica, that changes everything. And when it's the MA and it's like, hey, good to see you again, or good to see you again, Alonzo, that changes everything. So I think you just kind of hit on one of those things, either, you know, intentionally or unintentionally. And I actually think it was a brilliant idea within our hospital system in the ORs that on people's scrub caps right there, bright and center, you have their name. So we can see each other as not anesthesia and not scrub and not circulator, but somebody with a story. And and maybe we'll just kind of start talking a little bit about when we talk about creating culture, there's the idea, there's the goal, and then of course there's the people. Where do you kind of prioritize things? Yeah, it's a great question because everything's happening simultaneously. You know, we'd love to think to ourselves, we're going to take a new job or we're going to have a new responsibility. And, you know, like a textbook, we're going to have a statement about our mission, vision, values, and then we're going to do this and then we're going to do that. And we're going to communicate about them. And it's, we think about it in a linear way, but of course, that's not the way the world happens. The world happens in parallel. We're having meetings as we take that new job, as we arrive, we're you know, meeting people and engaging. And so I, I think you can't, to me, I've been most successful, I should say, having a conscious strategy and thinking about the kind of culture that I'd like, both in my local professional life, I mean, with my nurse, with my scheduler, with the partners in the practice, with school of medicine colleagues, et cetera. And then in my domain of responsibility, what's the mission, vision, values, culture I'd like to set for UC San Diego Health or 
if I'm not setting it, at least I'm influencing it. And again, we're like a, a you know an aircraft carrier to use the nautical analogy. And so it's, we're kidding ourselves if we think we're going to spin that on a dime, but we're going to influence it, keep pressure on it, and hopefully change the course over time and, and with our influence. So I think the first thing is you want to try to be intentional and you want to think about these things before you walk into the environment. If you're already in the environment, you'd like to pivot, spend some time thinking about it, and then think about those behavioral norms that you'd like to model. Because as leaders, of course, we're all leaders, people are watching you very carefully. And many times the teams that you're working with are going to model those behaviors that you're, that you're demonstrating and be somewhat intentional. And when I think about, again, emulating the most positive cultures that I've observed, one of the things I, I think is a really important thing when we're managing people is this idea of trust. And I think trust is something that causes alignment. It causes people to want to be part of the organization if they believe they're seen and heard and they have a sense of trust in the organization. Often people break down the organization into their immediate supervisor, their immediate environment. If there's trust, pride, credibility in that immediate environment, now you, you have an opportunity to influence their behaviors. If personnel, if people, colleagues across the entire chain don't trust you, if you're not credible to them, now you're much less likely to be able to influence their behaviors. Now you're getting down to those, you know, almost simple behavioral norms like let's show up on time, let's not get in trouble. Not the inspirational norms you're after, which is let's be best in class, let's be best in the world, let's be at our absolute best today and through our activity. To get to those aspirational, inspirational goals, you have to have people's heart with you, and that requires trust. I think about that. I think about opportunities to build trust. And I always think that personal challenges that people have, some people think about them. I'll think of an example. You know, we have a, a senior resident who needs paternity leave or, you know, is they and their spouse, either they're having a child or their spouse is having a child. The first time you hear about that, what's our instinct? Our instinct, if we're a program director is, oh, that's going to be a challenge, right? I need to find 12 weeks, yeah. six weeks. I'm going to have to redo my call schedule. It's going to be a burden for the other. Re so our instinct as managers is to think that's going to be a pain. I'm going to have to, you know, work through this. However, our instinct as leaders should be I have an opportunity to build trust with this person, to be faithful, to treat them like I know they would like to be treated. And that's going to create a sense of loyalty in them that will be game changing. So I look at those challenges, personnel challenges. It's an opportunity to build trust rather than a burden from a managerial perspective. Yeah, that's, that's incredibly insightful. I just think about an example from this week where, uh, a visiting medical student who'd done some research with me was asking about some support for attending a meeting. And, you know, my, my first reaction was, oh boy, you know, let me go kind of check out the coffers and this is a bit of a burden. But then I was like, you know, if I was a third year medical student, fourth year medical student for maybe a underservice, underfunded medical school, and somebody helped me get to a meeting, that could totally leave such an impact on me. 
And I think that's a very poignant perspective. And as I kind of prepared for this, the other thing I that occurred to me is it's really helping people find meaning and value in their work. If you don't see your job as a front person scheduler, as a critical part of the whole operation, and you're just getting on and off the phone, you know, as quickly as possible and just waiting till four o'clock, then that's not going to be an amazing experience for the patient. It's not going to be good for the organization. But if somebody explicitly a leader occasionally reminds you that none of this works without you bringing a patient into the door. That's something that I think could, you know, it kind of goes on and on, right? I mean, if the rooms are clean, if the patients are having a positive experience when they're being roomed, so on and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about just helping people find some meaning in, in what they're doing and the impact of that on a culture? I think it's really powerful. I'm sure it's powerful in other industries. Of course, we're in medicine, so it's particularly powerful for us because we're in a people profession. The how to, we know it's, if we can connect people to the beauty of our experiences, if we can let them in that window, they're going to, you know, really understand the power of what we do. And what I mean by that is a lot of people don't get the hug that you get, you know, six weeks post-op, favorable pathology, someone with a malignancy who now has hope of being disease-free, they and their family almost break down in tears and gratitude. And I know that's one of the most meaningful moments for you, having gotten to know you as a partner now. You know, everybody else on the team doesn't fully get to experience that. And now I'm in a position where I have a lot of leaders helping run the organization. And what I try to do is give them a little you know, a little vision to that gratitude that we get to experience as front as frontline caregivers. So I think the more we can connect people to that experience in healthcare, the better it feels for them. We try to do that through a number of you know, techniques. Of course, we're we're gonna have reflections at the beginning of meetings, and we usually will do a reflection around gratitude, a moment of meaning for patients. And that's an intentional technique. We're trying to connect people that don't have the benefit of that experience to what it's like. You know, we, we do that at the opening of a meeting where we'll do a little reflection and usually it's a moment of gratitude or meaning for patients. We'll do it in our written communications, similarly trying to kind of bring people home to the meaning of what we do. And then we do it by, as you correctly said, giving people that respect, not just respect for who they are as individuals, but respect for the meaning of the role that they play in this, in this big machine that we call it academic medicine. And if we can, uh, and I think you do a really nice job of it. I noticed when you first came, uh, your intentionality around remembering names and speaking to the MAs and the nurses and the other staff uh, by their first name. And I think that's a great habit. That's an intentional technique. I know you're thoughtful about it and I think it's very successful. So you know, as much as we can bring people into the magic of what we get to experience, the better it is. I think the other thing is I really believe in communication training for everybody. You know, I'm kind of a geek around compassionate communication and the power that it has to influence the patient experience, but also to influence the provider experience. If we can slow down just a minute, open our eyes, really see people and have that humanistic love 
for them, it's game changing. And we can't do it when we're 30 minutes behind rushing from task to task, just the same way we can't rush into a patient's room and hope they have a great experience. We have to slow down, listen to their story, see them as human beings. And that's, you know, it's not a game that we play. It's not a quote unquote technique. It really is the core of providing good medical care is listening. And immediately patients, of course, pick up on that. And the benefit to us is it makes it more fun and meaningful for us. And so I think it's a real win-win. And when you ask people, why don't you wish to do training? It's, oh, that's the soft, fuzzy part of medicine. You're either good at it or you're not. Of course, we know that's not true. We know that if we do training, if we slow down, think, try to be emotionally present, try to reflect emotional content, the techniques we can learn, we can all get better. And uh, I don't presume to be particularly good at this, but I do know that training and being intentional about it make me better at it. And I think that's true of our front desk staff. It's true of our MAs, LVNs, nurses. I'll talk about one of our characters at UCSD. We have an outstanding LVN who runs our procedure suite. And I can see Aditya smiling as I'm talking about him. I mean, he changes <laughs> the experience for our patients in a positive way, the way he greets people disarms them as they're about to have a cystoscopy or a transrectal ultrasound. He just has, he's very professional. He does his job well, but he has a very pleasant connecting and almost disarming personal style that I think is wonderful and makes a huge difference for our patients. So just as an example, the power of an individual to positively influ influence the experience for our patients. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking in my head, there's just so many questions and so much to unpack here. So, so the first thing, you know, going to that particular example is it's, it's very obvious that that person is being authentic. They're not just trying to get through that procedure to move on to the next patient. They want that patient to, you know, listen to some nice Zen music and really explain what's happening. And, and it goes into what you're saying. If we're rushing in and out and everything happens to be a task, I think that authenticity is gone. And ultimately, if you're just rushing through it, I think it's safe to say in some form or fashion, you're not necessarily enjoying it. And when you don't enjoy something, it's ultimately not going to be that fulfilling. And you've absolutely touched on, on the intentionality of this several times. And backing up, if you have a vision, goal, idea of what you're trying to accomplish, that's got to look like something. You know, is this where people feel safe? Is this where they feel comfortable? Is this a place where they think they can grow, develop, feel appreciated? So I guess what I'm asking is, how do you assess or diagnose your current culture to figure out if you should be doing something to intentionally change that culture? That's a great question. And I would divide it into our personal, reputational culture, and then our organizational culture. I think as as listeners to the podcast, some are probably thinking, oh, I'm a takeover as division chief or department chair or residency director or clinic manager. How should I think about this? Well, and I think the best way for us to understand our influence of others is to do a 360, to ask them in a setting where they can give us feedback safely. And if people are giving us feedback in other forums to try to really listen for the value of the feedback because feedback's a treasure. If someone gives it to you, you got to really listen carefully, even if it's difficult to hear. I've had leadership coaching throughout my career, done additional leadership training. And one of the things one of my favorite coaches said, he's a person I've worked with in the past few years in my current role, is 
he asked, what is my meta message? If we ask the faculty at UC San Diego Health, what would they think my priority is? And that's a really good question. And his recommendation was to ensure that I'm working and my first, second, and third communication is around my meta message. And I, I hope that is patient-centeredness, excellence, great access, great quality. But when we think about the tripartite mission, I really believe that outstanding, superb, highest quality patient care is at the center of our other missions. We can only do great research, great translational research, great education, if first we are taking responsibility for a truly superb patient care, and that's from their first contact through their you know, referral period. So I hope that's what people would take away, but I don't know that unless I ask. So personal and then organizational, um, I think we really only do that through looking at our organizational norms. What's your strategic plan? What's the externally facing materials? What's the internally facing materials? What are our recent engagement alignment surveys, staff surveys? So you have to do a really careful organizational assessment to understand where you are and then have a strategy. We can do anything, but we can't do everything. And so you have to have a strategy about what to tackle first. And if you're going to engage in change management, do that in a very thoughtful and in a way that's engaged with the entire team. And again, talk about we're talking about culture and books are written about that. Of course, change management, there's books written about, about that and change management's really, uh, you know, challenging. Yeah, that's really insightful, Chris. And you kind of mentioned this earlier. There's kind of our microcultures. Maybe we can start with our family. Then there's our professional cultures. You know, it's me and my team of a nurse and an MA every day seeing patients in the clinic and the OR, of course, circulator scrubs and residents and anesthesia and so forth. And I mean, it just kind of dawned on me, it seems obvious that if I sat down with my core team and said, let's try to define what we want to establish as a culture and as a priority. This is not me telling you as kind of the face of this and, you know, whether it's, whether it's for your lab. And then of course it gets, you know, bigger. You talked about division chiefs and see, you know, department chiefs, et cetera, hospital administrators, but. I think you're spot on because it's not really fair to assume that whoever is around a knows what your vision is and what your vision of culture is. It, nearly certainly there's benefit in taking into account what their ideas and opinions of a good supportive culture are and it you know may not be the same in every environment potentially. Can you comment a bit on that? I think you're picking up a lot of really important points and our behaviors are carefully observed. I said this before. And when we're talking about cultural norms, they're, they're really critical. So let me give an example. Let's say that my team, uh, I communicate to them that we want to be really outstanding in terms of uh, access, communication, and follow-up with the patients who I'm caring for. And I have a nurse, uh, primarily a nurse practitioner that works with me, a surgical scheduler, and I have, a, as you know, kind of a crazy high demand practice because I don't have as much time for my practice as I, as I used to. And so I can communicate that verbally. We can have a strategy in our team meeting. But if people are trying to reach me and they can't get a hold of me, my behavior 
is not consistent with my verbal support of that culture. And they'll pick right up on that. And so if I really care about that, I'm going to have to have a system where I check in with them daily or every other day, including when I have other responsibilities, including when I'm traveling or, or at least have a plan to care for patients when I'm out of town. Because our behavior has to support what we hope our cultural norm is. And if, we're, if there's inconsistency, I talked about trust investments, there's credibility investments too. If we are not credible, pretty soon people recognize that we're kind of fakers and that is eroding. So if you find that people are leaving your team, what are the signs of, of us failing as leaders or that perhaps we should rethink some of these priorities? If we have high attrition, you know, I think we should think about that. If we could do an exit interview, if it's possible, or we might want a surrogate to do that exit interview so it's less threatening for that individual and hear what, you know, what's going on. Because I think inconsistency, conflict, not treating team members consistently, promoting one team member over another, not seeing people authentically, miscommunication about what our priorities are, lack of availability. You know, one of the things I absolutely hate is when we are very strident with rules for patients. Oh, the patient was late. I'm not going to see them. Boy, that drives me nuts. Now, I always ask the provider, are you on time? Because if the patient's 10 minutes late, they're doing better than I'm normally doing. I'm normally 30 minutes late. So anyway, I, I think we express our behavioral norms, our leadership standards through verbal communication, written communication, standard setting. But what really matters is behavioral norms. And everyone's watching carefully this, if we follow through with those things. And I, I think the, on the leadership side, if you're an organizational leader, favoritism is a really insidious uh, lack of respect for the rest of the team. And I've seen the most dysfunctional teams often have a tone of favoritism where someone is breaking rules, someone's breaking behavioral norms, but they're not held accountable. And that's very eroding. The people lose trust in leadership very quickly if that happens. So, you, you, you know, those, that's hard. That's hard. None of us like to be the policeman, but we do have to be, we do have to hold people accountable. And uh, if we don't, it's really not, we're always afraid of offending that individual. But in being afraid of offending an individual, we're affecting an entire team. So uh, the 15 people, other people on the team are watching whether we're consistent in our standard setting for the misbehavior. So there's a lot there, but you know, and it's tough. I, I don't presume to do it perfectly or, or even well, holding people accountable, especially people who have special status is challenging, but it really is our responsibility as leaders. Yeah. I and mean, we've generally talked about kind of the positive attributes of a culture of leaders, the things that we kind of strive for. But you did mention a couple of things that are, you know, you could say suboptimal. I would say like, I probably saw this most notably, I hope I don't get in trouble during fellowship, <laughs> where like among the fellows, we uh, kind of developed a culture of complaining where, you know, it was kind of a us versus them mentality. And I mean, in, in ultra reflection, there is some value when you kind of have a common you know, you think about fraternity, sports, military, when you have a common other side, that can be a bonding experience. But uh, maybe I'll ask you to just give an example, Chris, of where you walked into a situation where you're like, man, this culture is not kind of what I thrive in or what I think people are going to be 
you know, really maximizing their potential and, and working in a, in a happy, positive space and, and what you've been able to intentionally do to, to shift that a bit. Yeah. We have to be careful because <laughs> everyone knows my, my career trajectory if they read, you know, the CV, but I'll tell one example. I, I started at the VA San Francisco many years ago after I'd finished my Navy career. I was uh, fortunate to get recruited back to UC San Francisco. This would have been 2001. And I took a job at UCSF and was so delighted to, to be there and reconnect with old mentors. And part of my job was to run the VA San Francisco. And before me, Joe Presti had led the VA San Francisco before he went to Stanford. And it's a great place in terms of very high quality VA medical center. It would remind you of our VA here in San Diego, taking care of a large group of veterans very competently. But there had been a vacuum uh, that had existed prior to my arrival. And I would say the residents were running the service. The attendings were not being as attentive to the service as they could be. And it created a culture of acceptance of supervision norms that, that I don't think any of us would find acceptable. We're junior residents running clinic, making difficult decisions really without faculty supervision that was adequate. And, and again, not, you know, not, nothing, not a crisis, but when I came in, it was, you know, not the way we would want our parents cared for, not the way we would want our brothers and sisters cared for. So holding colleagues, new colleagues accountable is challenging. Uh, they've built up their norm of two to three aces barely showing up. So ultimately started with me being present, me caring, and then explaining to colleagues. I remember what I did is blame the VA. The VA is now holding us accountable. It's not me. It's just, it's the VA. Uh, is holding us accountable yeah. and, uh, the, you know, the old rules don't apply. We have to be physically present and uh, it's going to be fun. You're going to enjoy it, <laughs> you know, and over a period of time, uh, the culture improved and the supervision standards got where I needed it to be. And my colleagues were great. And they ultimately, you know, almost hadn't noticed that they weren't giving the VA the full time and attention that it really deserved. And how do you do that? You know, you rely on relationships and then you also rely on people's sense of sense of just right and wrong. They knew that they were probably not giving the commitment that was necessary. So simply appealing to their sense of justice and being verbal and explicit about it, you know, a bunch of very good people, well-intentioned people kind of realized that, you know, Chris is probably right here. We need to do a little better for our trainees and the veterans and and so I, I had them kind of at hello when I talked about standard setting and what are the norms and, you know, we wouldn't intend to not, not do this correctly. And then of course we ran into, you know, there's always one or two people who are active resistors in change management and you have to identify the active resistors and manage them. And, you know, we, we, we had to do that as well, but I think 90% of physicians, probably 90% of professionals are well-intentioned, want to do the right thing and can be coached and redirected thoughtfully. And then you're going to have some people who maybe don't have the most positive intentions or thinking about things a little selfishly. They've gotten a little bit set in their ways, uh, have lost the mission, vision, values of what they're doing. And uh, those people, you know, have to be actively managed. And, and that's always challenging. That resonates with my residency. We got kind of a close watch, if you will, from 
couple of different agencies due to a variety of different things, but the, the kind of long and short of it, there was a lot more oversight from attendings required. And it was actually met by a lot of resistance from the residents, myself included. You know, I loved autonomy and I wanted to kind of be at the helm. And then I quickly realized that, you know, this was enhancing my education to be re rounding with these world-class faculty and hearing their thoughts and how they approach things. So I've kind of been through th something similar. And I think what it kind of boils down to is that there's always going to be change. I mean, you know, not to sound cliche, that's the one thing we can count on is that things are going to be changing. Yeah. And that could be, you know, new rules, new regulations, new leaderships, new ways of doing things. And, you know, just talk a little bit about communicating change. You know, do people like surprises <laughs> like, hey, guess what? X, Y, and Z is going to be doing this or, you know, what, what have you found to be effective as you implement change or observe change or have, I mean, COVID, as you manage change crisis that, that you didn't really expect to be coming? Yeah, it's a really great question. And, you know, there's many change management theories. You bring up COVID and for those who aren't aware, although I think this probably happened in many academic medical centers, when COVID happened, of course, we pivoted to everybody, you know, shutting down essentially other than emergency services. But then when we came back, we came back and, and launched our telehealth initiative over a period of weeks. That would have taken us years uh, outside of a crisis. And then our testing and vaccination processes. And we had the first super station to uh, vaccinate and widespread testing and just all these changes. And many academic organizations went through similar things. And in an emergency, as a leader, it's sort of empowering because the communication for the need for change is very clear to everybody. So you don't have to process things as carefully in an emergency. You hope that you've established trust and credibility. As I told you, those are really underpinnings of culture. But in a crisis, you are going to rely on your training and and trust and credibility to move a little bit more quickly than you would in normal change management processes. And, you know, in general, in more routine change management, I'll, I'll just tell something that we're really conscious of and working on right now. You know, we, we used to talk about the quality chasm in medicine. And after the Institute of Medicine report in 1999, you know, we talked about this quality chasm. The AMA talked about it in a pivot toward high quality healthcare. I, I actually think we have a convenience chasm. I think we're the last really inconvenient profession. And so I really want us to move toward more convenience. And that is going to require a lot of work. But you see a lot of things building up, uh, a lot of medical institutions building up around us to try to overcome our inconvenience. You know, vaccinations at CVS and one medical primary care with great online access. Those are really efforts to attack the convenience chasm of academic medicine. And one of my visions for UCSD Health is to jump ahead in this regard, even though we're a tertiary quaternary medical center, to have online scheduling, to really move toward electronic communications rather than the phones, and, and really try to bridge this convenience chasm. So that's a classic change management you know, strategy. And I really like you know, nudge theory. There's a number of change management theories, but they all have similar, you know, things. You, you really have to communicate the need for change. What's the gap between the present and the desired future? And that has to be somewhat compelling. And then you need to listen carefully to the rest of the team and make sure it's not a top-down initiative. 
the rest of the team has to agree that there is a gap and it's worthy of our effort. And then you have to communicate, communicate, communicate as you engage the team and working toward thinking about solutions. And then you try to get some quick wins and try to have some positive reinforcement. And then I think the final thing is you want to keep pressure on the change. If you try to change something big and important quickly, and then you take pressure off the change, it is like a rubber band. It's going to snap right back to previous behavioral norms. Because as Peter Drucker said, you know, culture's sticky and culture beats strategy every day um, or culture eats strategy for lunch, I think was his actual quote. So when we think about change, you know, communicate, understand the need, listen carefully to your team and, and, and understand if this is really worth the energy, both financially, emotionally, professionally, we're going to put into this, over-communicate and get some wins, have something measurable that's a goal, and then keep pressure on. Uh, no important change happens quickly. And, uh, you know, you've heard the, the saying, I think it's so true, if we want to go quickly, we go alone, we want to go far, we go with a team. Same thing with change. If you want to go far, you know, you got to really bring everybody with you or they need to bring you with them. And then I, to use the nautical analogy, I think about a large ship at the wheel at the helm. <clears throat> you have to keep pressure on the helm. As soon as you release that pressure, it spins backwards. So are you willing to keep pressure on the helm for months or years to affect that change? Because that's what's required in big organizations. So I was just thinking about a couple of things, Chris, and it's come up in a couple of different ways over the course of this conversation that probably the biggest kind of mindset change, certainly as physicians, is going to be switching from this idea of like, we have this ultra premier limited time and everything should kind of center around us. That may or may not kind of persist or exist anymore. But the things that you mentioned, you know, scheduling, if I'm late versus them being late, you know, a, a patient's got their life and maybe it's more convenient for them to come in and see us in person with their, with their scans here because that kind of closes the loop, but that's a day off of work where they could be, you know, taking care of their kids or sitting in their office. The example at the VA, you know, if this was your parent or your daughter or son or et cetera, how would you want them taken care of? And, you know, just the other day, yesterday, literally, we were on a conference call, faculty meeting, and the things that you were addressing were parking. And, you know, I brought up getting the, you know, patient on a telehealth visit in a reasonable way. And I certainly noticed this plenty with, you know, the previous department chairman I worked with, Klaus Warburn, who was always attentive to these patient-oriented details, like can the computer screen turn in a way so they can see their imaging and labs while you're sitting there and talking to them. And I was like, huh, like, you know, this is somebody who I would say has got a lot on their plate dealing with small things that are good, beneficial, convenient for patients. And I think that we're all just going to have to ex accept that, you know, we're a part of the equation with our patients, with our teams. We're not the epicenter always. And I kind of get the sense that if, as physicians, that's a unique pill to swallow. I agree with you. You know, we, we throw out the term patient-centered, but we build cultures that are physician-centered. And that's not, you know, I, I, I don't mean it, it really isn't a teeter-totter. If you're patient-centered, you're not inherently not physician-centered. 
Uh, it's not a teeter-totter. We should be able to do both. However, there are times when being really patient-centered asks more or differently of physicians, and we should be explicit about that. On-time starts in the operating room so that we can utilize the operating room well. That really requires the attending surgeon or their proxy being present a little earlier to make sure that every detail is correctly managed before we go back to the operating room. If the attending and or their proxy shows up 10 minutes late, it's going to be really hard to get that fourth case done today. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but so there's a tone of, of responsibility that comes with what we all desire, and that is highly efficient, you know, well-run organizations. When I think about culture, getting back to your first question, one of the things that's really important for physicians is being on a functional team. And functional teams don't take as much work. You know, somehow when I show up and my nurse is ready, the LVN who I work with is, is there, the MA has roomed the patient, and it just feels like the team is ready to go it's going to be a better experience for me. It's going to be a better experience, you know, for the patients. And it's easier to be positive and happy and be between patients talking about our families and talking about the things we like to do and, and for it to be a really wonderful experience. If I show up 30 minutes late, we're in a panic. The first patient's irritated. The wife is coming, you know, coming out of the procedure suite because we're 45 minutes late. Or, you know, all of a sudden the dynamic is destroyed. And whose fault was that? It, you know, it was me. And it didn't feel like a very functional team, but it was kind of my responsibility. So I think the best thing I can do to support our physicians is to make sure that our teams are, are functional to the extent we can manage that. And we do have a lot of authority and influence managing that. And then there's a professional responsibility on the physician side to be a good team member because the physician is ultimately the, the leader of any medical team providing healthcare in an academic medical center. So it's kind of a two-way street. But I, I really believe in functional teams leading to joy of practice and joy of medicine. Yeah. So particularly in, in your role, your, your team includes UCSD and your team includes the physicians group and your team includes the urology department that, you know, at some point in your career, and then again, your OR teams and clinic teams. So clearly setting the tone with, with positivity, with hard work, with good energy, that's all fantastic. And hopefully it's contagious and hopefully it doesn't have to be really starting from, from somebody that, that things aren't really working out well. But then are there, let's just say tangibles, you know, carrots and sticks, having lunches once a week where you're sitting down and it's like a non-work related thing or... I mean, sticks, we can talk about that here in a minute. Or, you know, I, I will say that even over the course of the last decade, you've seen it, I've seen it. There's been these kind of top-down approaches, dean of culture, you know, wellness chief. And, you know, what, what in your opinion, works maybe at, at the small team level and at the big team level? Carrots, sticks, top-down, bottom-up. Yeah. I think leading by influence rather than authority is is true whenever we're leading very functional teams very highly trained people of course even though i have this positional authority i have no authority right i can't do anything without the concurrence of the faculty so all of my leadership is through influence not through authority and i think the small small teams 
kind of the department level is very powerful. I really think some of the things I, I believe in, and, and maybe it's a little cultural or generational, I believe in getting together socially in a structured way. And so we just had something, I'm just delighted Dr. Manga, the new chair of the department, has continued a tradition that Nancy and I started in 2007, and that is having a welcome party for our new residents, you know, new interns and new faculty in August or September to begin the year. And, and Nancy and I always did that at our home. And that was a physician-centered party to congratulate new faculty. It's a huge deal getting hired and having, especially that first faculty job, and to celebrate them. We usually would invite their family. If their parents could attend, we'd invite their parents and, and celebrate them. Same thing with the interns and new residents and new fellows. So I think that's powerful to come to someone's home, to have them raise a glass, to meet their family. It communicates something about that's different than having just a work party. So I think it does communicate something around value and trust. And then we have a holiday party and we'd include our larger team in the holiday party and the larger team, meaning all of our nurses and everybody and, and uh, Nancy and Delora, Delora Cater and, and my wife would buy presents for all the children attending age appropriate gifts. And it of course became the popular party for the kids. It's like, where are we going to Dr. Kane's house? Because I know Mrs. Kane's going to have a present for me. And that is fun. That's a party for 150 to 200 people. And Nancy and Delora are spending three days preparing for it, going out and getting 50 presents for kids. But that's an investment of effort that I think everybody really appreciated. And it was something that was positive. I know that uh, Jill Buckley invites the residents to her home. And I think those are, those are powerful things. It doesn't always have to be to your home, but you know, including people in your life and connecting and I know in today's world, that doesn't sound that convenient. It's not a Zoom call. It sort of requires in-person, but I really love it. I've noticed you've hosted a journal club at your home. I think when the faculty do those things, it's very powerful for the residents and our trainees, and it influences the third year and the fourth year and the rotating sub-eyes to want to be part of our team because it feels cohesive. Everyone's friendly. It feels connected. And I think ultimately, those are all expressions. It gets back to my initial you know, those are expressions of respect for junior residents and, and interns and stuff. So I, I really do believe in those, in those social events. You have to be a little bit careful. I, I become good friends with our faculty and I'm, I'm always thinking, gee, if I go golfing with Mike Shea, how does that feel to our other faculty? I'm going to need to make sure I have access for others who don't golf. And I'm just picking on Mike because he and I like to golf together. And you got to be a little careful. And, and that's one of the challenges of leadership is, you know, you can't have very disproportionate relationships with your teams who you are leading. And uh, even though I'm closer friends with some faculty than others, I have to be cautious about the time and energy that I spend with those faculty. And I do think about that. It's not fair for me to have a, an imbalanced relationship with those that I happen to share hobbies with. So those are little cautions that I've noticed over the years that, uh, you know, you have to, it's great to be social, but you also have to be a little bit careful and respect your positional authority. Yeah. I think I first, I felt that I kind of, I guess, wrestled with that the most when I came back as an attending after fellowship to my alma mater and you're, you know, you still have residents that you've kind of worked with and had a very different relationship with, but 
you strike a balance, I think. And, you know, if people know you and trust you, it can, it can be very positive. And I think absolutely out of work, kind of shedding some of those positional layers. And it's just like, we're all people with families that are trying to, you know, get through life and have a pretty good time and do something meaningful is incredibly valuable. I actually think in the workplace, there's a lot of value. I've, I've reflected on this quite a bit over my, it's, it's been a year and 29 days now since I've been here at UC San Diego. And, you know, a lot, we kind of had ebbs and flows of COVID and restrictions and lifting of restrictions within person. And, you know, Jill can tell you, I've been like a broken record. I was like, Jill, can we just like plan on getting together once a month, prioritize it? Because I want to like know people and I want to like know them as people and not just like as somebody that I get on with like a 50 person zoom and I want them to know me. So they kind of, you know, there's a perceptions, um, in a professional format, but also here's what X, Y, and Z are like in a, in a non-professional, just see the body language, be with each other and, and see how that feels. So I, I think you're right. And it's, it's intentional and it's, it's not always convenient. I mean, you know, I had a 6 a.m. Zoom this morning and I was able to do part of it while driving into work. And I prefer that, you know, being here at 530 rounding and then doing it. So I can absolutely appreciate what you're saying. And I, and I think it does lend itself to some of that organic bottom up culture change, which is equally, if not as important as, as top down implementation. And I agree with that. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when we, when I first came to UC San Diego, the first senior resident class, and they were PGY threes when I came, really got energized writing papers and doing, uh, doing research. And that class really helped change the culture at UC San Diego because of their, they were so productive. They kind of brought the faculty along with them. And we recruited some new faculty at that time who were enthusiasts. But having the, the, the fact that our mid-level and senior residents really jumped into academic productivity and got excited about the opportunity, we had databases and relationships uh, where we could bring them right into health services research. That ended up really being an incredible positive feedback tool. So we recruited then resonance that were energized by those academic opportunities. So although I hope I helped set a tone, I think our resonance productivity helped feed this positive feedback loop that led to academic excellence that's become a reputation for us. And I, I absolutely give John Silberstein and, and his uh, classmates credit for helping generate that culture. Well, Chris, uh, I've certainly obtained plenty to reflect upon and think about and implement. And, you know, by all means, I've done about a thousand things that were probably like culture generating ultra faux pas over the course of my career. And maybe a takeaway is that it's, uh, it's never too late, just like so many things in life. You know, there's always opportunities to reflect, to implement, to learn and to, you know, maybe not right a wrong ship, but to at least change the course to something that that resonates for everybody a bit more. But as we kind of come up across an hour, I feel like I could spend another hour just picking your brain and learning from you. You know, what, what are some of your, your parting thoughts to the, to the listenership here? Because you're right, as physicians, like inherently, we are in a leadership position. Yeah, I think probably as I reflect on where we, we covered like six different topics, but they were mostly centered around culture, trust, behavioral standards, 
if I had a takeaway, it would be, you know, the power of positivity is really profound. And that doesn't mean we need to walk into situations Pollyannish because that's not authentic, right? If things are a struggle. But the power of this idea that we're fortunate to do what we do, medicine is an incredible privilege. As surgeons, we get to care for patients at this nidus of crisis, and we need to, you know, we would do well to reflect and appreciate that, how fortunate we are. And as we enter today's activities, to simply start with the idea that, you know, let's be as positive as, as we can be. Let's be present for the team members who we're with. If we don't know their names, it's a great habit to learn their names. And let's be present for our patients. Slow down, let them tell their story for that first minute before the first interruption. And I think those little behavioral norms are very powerful. So it's almost like trying to get fit. You know, it starts by putting your tennis shoes on and, you know, going out for that walk or that jog. We're not going to run a marathon on day one. We're not going to revolutionize our culture. But first, let's start by just putting our tennis shoes on and making a commitment to try to drive as much positive influence in our personal culture. And I'm, we're focusing on our work culture as we can and see if that feels good and, and is engaging. I, I joke with faculty that, you know, not every day has to be process improvement day. Process improvement day can feel sort of exhausting. Sometimes it's, hey, let's just do a good job today. Let's just take care of patients. Let's focus on the here and the now. And I think that's enough. People listening to this podcast are, you know, incredible leaders. They've, you know, had all this achievement, all this training. And uh, we don't want all of this stuff to feel overwhelming. What they're doing every day is enough. And if we can, you know, enhance the quality, trust, culture of our teams through our behaviors and influence, better yet, it will probably enhance our experience as well. It'll certainly enhance the patient's experience. So I hope it was useful, Aditya. I think Backtable Urology is awesome. Just to throw in a compliment for you, I've listened to a number of the podcasts and uh, you've really been a leader in communicating in urology. So congratulations. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Well, I have the good fortune of interfacing with Chris in multiple different contexts, tumor board, departmental meetings, grand rounds, and so on and so forth. And you know, by all means, it's obvious that you are reflective on comments, that you're incredibly positive, and that you're able to take a lot of what you've, what you've intentionally studied and implemented into a really amazing impact on, on the university, on your department, and, you know, beyond. So really appreciate your time, Chris. It's been, uh, it's been a real pleasure picking your brain, learning from you, and hope the listenership enjoys it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Aditya. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.